Welcome to the Electric Monks Podcast. Episode 30, Big Trouble in Little Pocket Dimension. Hello, welcome back once again to the Electric Monks Podcast. I'm your host, Ed, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Nemo. Good morning from Down Under. And Jesse. Good afternoon from California. And uh, good evening late at night from the United Kingdom. <laughs> so today we'll be doing episode nine of season two of the BBC America slash Netflix, Dirt Gently Sisters TV show, which is called Trouble is Bad. Indeed it is. Big trouble in little pocket dimension. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we get into all the details and stuff. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on this episode as the season is rapidly coming in to a close? Uh, initial impressions, at least. Uh, do you like it? Do you think it's better than uh, episode eight? Or do you think it sets up the no. finale well? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, it's clearly a setting up the finale episode, to my feeling. Yeah. It, it had the benefit over some previous episodes where we actually see everybody, all, all of our major characters that we know and love, uh, get a scene somewhere uh, they get we get a little bit of everybody's story, but it, a lot of it feels like moving characters around so that they're in the right spot for the final. It's just like, oh yeah, we need to get Bard and Panto back into Wendemore. Oh, we need to get Dirk out of Wendemore. We need to. It's just it's, stuff it's happens, moving pieces on the chessboard. Yeah, yeah, it's moving pieces on the chessboard. It, it's not bad. It's just there's so much stuff, I guess, in a way that it it doesn't really have plot. It just has characters moving around it's got a few really fun interactions bard and priest when we get to that is just fantastic that's perhaps one of my favorite interactions in the whole season uh and that's absolutely the highlight of the episode but beyond that it's not memorable yeah not memorable. I think this is also the only time susie and dirk interact in the whole series at the beginning of this episode which is quite i find yeah. quite funny how they yeah. avoid each other despite susie's plot being trying to kill dirk several times this is the only time they actually have a conversation with each other uh i don't agree with nemo but i still didn't like it um <laughs> i mean i feel like bart's bart and ponto's story end here I feel like a lot of stories end here. The entire B-plot ends here. There's a lot that happens in this episode in terms of the plot for me. I just feel like it's not done well. And, it, you know, you know me and, and characters having motivation. I see even in the notes there's some of those issues. But, like, even pretending that, you know, those characters do have appropriate motivations and looking past that, there's still a lot of stuff that drags in this episode. There's some stuff that I don't feel like was necessary. Um, not a not a ton, but I do think that like you could cut maybe five or ten minutes out of this episode, and you wouldn't be missing a whole lot. So it just doesn't feel very tight. And the way a lot of the plots were wrapped up, I felt underwhelmed by. That's sort of this uh, season series in a nutshell. It's not really very tightly written, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so this this episode, Trouble is Bad, directed by Ulrich Riley, uh, written by Molly Nussbaum and Max Landis, and also, uh, if you want to watch this for yourself, it's available in Europe and pretty much everywhere else apart from the US on Netflix. In the US, you can watch it on Hulu. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray for those who wish to seek it out. So, uh, synopsis. 
Susie finally has Dirk and company cornered, but before she can use magic to kill them, Wygar catches up to them and covers Susie's mouth. He tells Silas that the Trusts are marching on the Dengdemores, and that Silas has to talk his mother down and prevent any more bloodshed, before Susie breaks through and Wygar sacrifices himself to give everyone a chance to escape. Susie decides to let Dirk and his friends go and deal with them later, believing they're too insignificant and weak to stop her. Instead, she orders her army to slaughter what's left of the two families. Meanwhile, over at Blackwing, Ken and Friedkin's attempts to catch Mona Wilder go awry when Mona turns into a chain and starts to strangle Friedkin. Ken appeals to her better nature and is able to get her to morph into human form and come quietly, but Friedkin is severely winded. On their way to Wendemore, Bart and Panto Trost approach the Cardenas house, which is occupied by Priest and Blackwing. Ken attempts to convince Bart via iPad to come back to Blackwing and reunite with him, but Bart turns him down and decides that she would prefer to go to Wendemore with Panto, since that's where the big happy ending will be. In Wendemore, Dirk and co. head for the throne room pool, while Silas splits with the group to find his family. Amanda teaches Todd how to harness his parabulitis to make objects from his attacks real, while Silas runs into Panto and Bart, who agree to help him. Susie, meanwhile, opens a portal for Lord Triangle and his men to invade Blackwing. Susie orders them to kill everyone they see, believing they'll eventually find the boy. At Blackwing, Friedkin and Ken question Mona. Mona explains that she didn't teleport out of Blackwing herself, she was being guided by a snail from another dimension that could see through her eyes, who needed Mona's help to get people where they needed to be. As they leave, the Kellum Knights arrive and begin a bloodbath. Ken, who has the same appearance as Friedkin, takes control of the situation and orders men to secure Project Moloch. Same clearance as Friedkin. Oh, same right. clearance. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Early in the morning for you, Nemo. It is, it is way too early in the morning. <laughs> At the quarry in Bergsburg, Farah and Tina wake up after being knocked out by the mage. They try to ambush him, but the mage sees it coming and freezes them in place. He explains that he is using Hobbs to fill up the boot of his car with explosives, which the zombified Hobbs will then drive into the Cardenas homestead, destroying the portal to Wendemore. At the mage's mercy and seriously injured, Farah gets lucky as the mage loses his wand due to his overconfidence. Farah shoots the car and it explodes, destroying the mage. Hobbs wakes up from his enslavement and wonders what the heck happened. Panto, Silas, and Bart finally catch up with Jepham and Freya, the other family members having killed each other already. Just as it looks like they're finally about to make up, the Kellum Knights trap and shoot the last family members dead. In a rage at the murder of her new friends, Bart decides to take revenge on the Knights with her chainsaw. Dirk and co. reach the throne room and its portal, but Amanda can't keep it open for long enough on her own. Todd can help, though because he also has parabulitis. The Rowdy Three leave to hold off Susie, who has finally caught up with them, leaving Dirk to jump through the portal to Blackwing on his own. End of episode. There we go. Well done, guys. We got through it. <laughs> uh, very quickly, the cast list. Sam Barnett is Dirk Gently, Lodgewood is Todd Brutzman, Hannah Marks is Amanda Brutzman, Fiona Roof is Bart Killish, Jada Shetts Farrah Black, Umfo Choir is Ken Adams, Dustin Milligan is Sergeant Hugo Freakin, Michael Eklund is Martin, Oswick Chow is Vogel, Tyler Labina is Sherlock Holmes, Amanda Walsh is Susie Borton, Christopher Russell is Panto Trust, rest in peace Panto, Izzy Steele is Tina Tevatino, <laughs> Lee Majdiv is Silas, rest in peace Silas, Alex Panuvik is Weigar Oak, rest in peace Weigar, Karakon is Freya, Dengdemore, rest in peace Freya, actually no one likes Freya, <laughs> Dylan Shomping <laughs> is the boy, Viv Leacock is Grips, Zach Santiago is Cross, Iron Tudic is Mr. Priest, John Hanna is the Mage, uh, Emily Tennant is the Beast, Kristen Sloan as Lord Triangle Bad Evil, 
David Allen Pearson as Jeffrey Trust. Yeah, you're there too. Hunter Dillian as young Arnold. Amitai Mamorstein as Lieutenant Assistant. Robert Cornes as, as Project Moloch. Tannis Dolman as Beast. Uh, so I'm not sure if he's a different beast to the Beast that he's in. He's credited in there, so if I mention him. And finally, Bentley as Rapunzel the Corgi. Although he's uncredited as well, uh, bizarrely, uh, even though he gets a, a good screen time. He, he sort of, um, we see him running away when the the Kellum Knights break into Blackwing through the shower in Ken's room, bizarrely. Let's go into talking points. So the opening, the cold open shows us the aftermath of the last week's cold open. So it's um, after both of the Cardenas parents uh, have uh, basically... With it with scissors, and then she drives away, and then her son puts her into a tree. Yeah, and effectively kills her by tree. So we see the aftermath of that. We see young Arnold walking around, and he goes. He he looks into the kitchen. There's a weird thing with the music. So he sees the flowers shattered on the floor, and there's a weird musical sting. Like, oh no, the flowers! <laughs> Which is really weird to me that they sort of play as almost as a horror sting. And then he looks away, looks back again. And we see that the boy, Francis, has uh, put a very colourful-looking platter out. Almost like Francis is behaving as though nothing happened, as though he's sort of in denial about how... Oh, I didn't think that. I thought that... Well, A, I think the musical sting was on the blood. Oh, um, okay. I thought it was on the flower that was shattered uh, on the floor, because we, we see it put back together, so... Yeah, yeah, no. They show the flowers, but I thought there was a blood pool as well that looked kind of fake. But they do cut back and forth, back and forth in there. I, my interpretation of the breakfast platter being put out was not was that it was uh, subconscious. It was just this boy dreamed of breakfast because he wants breakfast, and so breakfast had appeared. It was just like his his mind was just like taking care of him for him. Because, yeah, because we don't really see the boy. Um... You know, he obviously he went into a fit at the end uh, in the cold open in the previous episode, which and uh, which is when uh, you know he basically killed his mum. We don't really see him showing that much remorse. Obviously, you know, it's all silent, so there's and it's mainly about Arnold's perspective, I guess. In the first, I don't episode. think he understands what happened. He's Maybe, like a yeah. kid, if that. Like, his parent, he just thinks his parents have disappeared, basically. And doesn't quite yeah, care. I mean that's a traumatic moment, you know. Because my interpretation is Arnold sees Francis get the food platter out and sort of, I almost thought that Arnold seems to think that um, that Francis is just sort of pretending nothing happened and that, that this sort of freaks Arnold out because obviously he, you know, he doesn't have that same disconnect. My read from that is that Arnold feels like his brother is the reason all of this happened. Yeah, he blames his brother for the murder of his father and for the death of his parents. You know, like any kid at that time period, he trusts the police, he trusts the government, and he's like, well, they told me to call this number, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn my brother in. I don't like this sequence, only because I feel like it drags badly. It also doesn't really tell us anything new. It sort of just confirms what Dirk already told us, basically. We it's, get to see the 67, yeah. it's kind of cool. Well, we see the 67, but I didn't need to see the 67, and it wasn't like it was a particularly interesting sequence. Um, but it, no. it also <laughs> like it also lets them do a fade between the boy and adult Project Moloch, which like I get that. You know what? I get setting that up. I feel like you could have set that up in episode 10, but I get setting it up in episode nine because he's the MacGuffin that everyone's trying to get to. I I understand that. I get why everyone's trying. Like you need to uh, remind the audience that there's this old dude in. 
Blackwing, and that's why we're going to send all of these people to go after this old dude in Blackwing. But I feel like you could have done it faster. Visually, the way that uh, they represented the precursor to Blackwing as very cliche men in black, uh, I enjoyed. But that was a highlight to me of that uh, intro. It was just like, oh, hey, cool. Men in black style, black suits, the glasses, the dispassionate look, even as crazy weird things happen around them. It's like, okay, that's neat. But you're, you're right. It lasted for too long and didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. So, yeah, that's really that um, cold open. So I think the next thing after cold open is we pick up with uh, Susie confronting Dirk and co. What, how do you guys feel about um, Weigar appearing here? And we almost get this sacrifice from Weigar that is sort of... Do you feel it's overplayed? Because we get, we get that this big scene where Weigar sacrifices himself. He has this really painful-looking death where Susie basically strangles her with these molten shapes that burn him. It's almost like burnt and strangled to death, basically. And then later on, we get a really anticlimactic, almost, kind of death of Panto and Silas, who are one of our more main characters, I'd argue, than Weigar. So it's, it's a little odd. I mean, obviously, it's so they can... Dirk and Silas all can escape, but still, it just seems a bit odd and the other reason is why does he help them in the first place as well because in the previous episode he they literally just kidnapped silas from him and had a big fight with him and now he's willing to help them obviously you know she's the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing i guess but it, it feels a little no, crappy this whole scene i, I disagree i disagree like I, we talked about it last time there is a very clear moment in the previous episode where weigar and freya listen to dirk tell them everything and 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 like you know they try to appeal to their or uh better half actually it isn't dirk it's uh, it's amanda isn't it amanda, amanda and todd. they listen to amanda and todd tell them everything they tell like he knows everything and he has a there's a very clear defined moment where he has regret about betraying silas and so this death is him finishing that arc and making up for his betrayal of silas yeah and like that, it makes sense. It follows that pattern. I feel like you don't need to explain his motivations so far. I just think it's stupid that he just walks out of like camera right and puts like, and just like strong arms her without even like, she never even notices him coming like that, that it's, it's like end of episode previously. It's like, how are they going to get out of this one? And then it's just like, because Weigar just comes out of left field and it just... It, no. <laughs> that feels really funny because we had Susie who was waiting and listening to Dirk's story from inside the cave. And now we have Weigar who's presumably hiding in a bush. He must have arrived halfway through Dirk's story and just waited for the right moment to reveal yeah. himself. So that, that's kind of conky. <laughs> yeah. It's silly. It's, it's on brand for how silly that world is. So whatever. I'd sort of forgotten about that um, that earlier scene of Wygon had at LinkedIn. I always seem to forget about Wygar, and I think he's a better character than I remember giving him credit for, to be honest, As, especially among the supporting cast. I think his relationship with Silas is actually fairly decent and interesting. He's a good little kind of foil yeah. for Silas in terms of being the voice of caution and reason, except here he's like, no, sort this out now, I believe you. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing I noticed in that scene, uh, and in, that I put down in my notes, was that because he gets such a a longer death through uh, Susie's magic shapes, and you know, I I kind of read it as he was being uh, squeezed, uh, you know, python like by contracting shapes that they were also clearly hot and uh, damaging in that manner. Uh, but I really appreciated the effects of the shapes. Just the they really gave off of uh, I don't know how much of it was uh, practical effects. Uh, versus CGI in different parts. But those elements blended well together. It, they had a real physicality and strength and heat 
you know, came through in watching them. So that actually was my highlight for that scene. Yeah, the effects whenever they use uh, magic in the series seem to be pretty solid. To be fair, yeah. To, especially when Susie throws out a few shapes, it always seems to. Uh, the hospital scene also stands out for as being very good at that as well. They have quite yeah. crazy with the way Susie uses the shapes of like him and Tina in the middle of the door and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, no, that was well done. So yeah, uh, I've already, you've already changed my mind on that. So that always seems to happen in this. I complain about something, you change my mind. <laughs> Well, the, you do have a point here about um, Dirk and Amanda looking back with regret and in the notes, and I and I don't disagree, especially with that, except for the fact that like Amanda's whole thing in this world has been that she cares about the lives of the people in it. Um, yeah, I that's don't know fair, that... but, but he's he's given them time to escape. I don't mind the look back, the fact that Dirk looks back and he's like, oh no, and then Amanda does it too, and Todd Todd has to sort of stop them both times. That just feels a bit kind of unnecessary <laughs> that they can have one scene where they both look back it causes the scene to drag i agree yeah and we also have silas go splitting from the group and having his look back as well and yeah i have it just having like uh, sacrifice himself was kind of enough we didn't need oh everyone is so upset about this character especially these two they barely know why he's he's nothing to them. they just fought why as well so yeah <laughs> it doesn't make yeah, I mean, the rally three fought him, but yeah. Yeah. Susie also decides not to chase after them. She's sort of like, oh, they're so insignificant. And because she finally meets Dirk, like I said, we have that only interaction in the whole series where she's like, I can't believe the mage was scared of you. It's like, he was? <laughs> Which I like is a little kind of thing. But it's the only time that Dirk actually gets to speak back to Susie the whole series, <laughs> despite the fact that Susie's tried to kill him so many times. And it's been like her main, one of her main goals. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's interesting that Susie sort of is so underwhelmed by finally meeting Dirk that she's like, "Nah, I'll deal with them later." And well, what I actually really like about that Susie moment is, at first, I think that's stupid. They're making her do the thing where she underestimates her opponents, and then I'm like, "Oh, but is she doing that?" Because, like, in her mind, it's checkmate. Right. In her mind, she's got the pool that can send people around. She knows where the boy is and she'd much rather just kill the boy than muck around with Dirk. And I think that that's actually like tactically pretty smart, even though, you know, she, she's missing key information. But given the information that she has, her actions do kind of make sense. I have a question about the follow up scene where Susie opens the portal. How does she know where Blackwing is? Just from Dirk mentioning, oh, the boy's in Blackwing. Because she knows nothing, next to nothing about Blackwing. She doesn't know that it's located underground. I don't think even Dirk really knows where exactly it is underground because he's only ever been in and out through portals. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find that a little... Is I sort of picture, like, oh, does, does the portal do it for her? Is there like an address book with every Earth location? She's like, where is Blackwing? Oh, here it is in like Nevada or I don't know. I mean, it's Wachty's cave and she was talking to mona you could make a link there you could also just yeah. say it's magic and she has like the most magic in that world so like yeah i suppose man. it's hypocritical of me not to complain about the amanda wacky scene where they get their anti free out of black thing and now to complain about this so yeah i suppose like <laughs> I, I just find it a little funny easily I, I think that's a that's a fair observation. It can be explained, but there's so there's actually several different possible explanations. And yeah, once you bring it up, it's like no, actually that's a good point. Yeah, just just which one of those? It would have been nice to have a you know, a, a five second offline. It's like yeah, uh, this is Wacky's pool. I can get everywhere that she's been to. You know, yeah, yeah. Like I, I 
I, I understand where you're coming from. I feel like I care less about how things like explaining the mechanics of how something works versus explaining the motivations of stuff. And so when there's yeah. magic or sci-fi stuff going on, I don't always need like a, this gun shoots, you know, this particular way. And that explains how it works. Yeah. But I, I, I feel I like you've had saying. an influence where I've just become more petty as this season has gone on. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not necessarily your fault as well. Maybe I've just become bitter and I'm an old. <laughs> um so anyway moving on from me owning myself um shall we shall we get out of the your favorite part out of the way jesse all the blackwing scenes so shall oh we talk you want to do all of blackwing we can do all of that's that's a lot they bounce around <laughs> I, I mean we can sort of do just the scenes with ken and freaking your favorite characters uh so well, just with them and mona because they all seem to be fairly we'll do the mona sequence yeah and then we'll uh, we'll jump back to the priest ken sequence later um yeah okay so yeah the mona sequence uh you mind if i just do the explanation on that one yeah it starts with ken and prepping some soldiers basically that they're looking for a squeezy toy and they basically bust into freaking's office the squeezy toy isn't there and Friedkin has a freak out and... A Friedkin out, if you will. <laughs> a Friedkin out, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and so he grabs a gun on the desk and... Uh, on the floor, isn't it? He picks it off the floor or he knocks off the desk and picks it up, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And he then shoots wildly um at just trying to shoot at, at Mona, wherever, whichever object she might be, and can, like has to explain to him that like the gun isn't going to do anything. And then Friedkin's like, maybe you're Mona, which I actually think is maybe the smartest thing he's ever done. Um, <laughs> because he it at least shows that like, yeah, she totally could be Ken. And like the audience wouldn't even know. And then they kind of undermine that entire sequence with him being like, it's a thing I thought of, so I have to do it. Uh, which is a line that Friedkin says. And then Ken has a, a, a moment of realization and says, Hey, you know, your gun is still in your holster. And then he realizes that he's holding Mona. Mona is the gun in his hand. And then she turns into a chain and starts strangling him, which is interesting. I, I, it's unclear to me how the mechanics of Mona work, but again, it's not a thing that's like terribly hard. So then Ken basically talks Mona down from strangling Friedkin to death as a chain. And she then becomes a human with her, arm, with her hands wrapped around Friedkin's neck. And then we kind of have a, a very brief talk with her, uh, which and then it, it it moves to her being in sort of an interrogation room full of men with guns. And just we can just pull that sequence apart first before we move to the second sequence, I think. Yeah. So uh, firstly, um, I think I'm freaking thinking that Ken is Mona or you, you're Mona and you don't even know. <laughs> it reminds yeah, me no. of um, it reminds me of a. Uh, some reason it reminded me of uh, if you if you do you guys remember a game called uh, Team Fortress Two and they had there's of one course. video famously um, Meet the Spy where the, the spy class is sort of explained introduced and the spy is, talks about how the the enemy spy could disguise himself as anyone it could be you it, it could be that guy over there it could even be me and then he gets shot through the head by the dumb character the soldier and he's like ah, it was obvious <laughs> look he's the red spy he's gonna turn red any second now look. Oh, no, wait, that's blood. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this is reminding me uh, very heavily of that, uh, freaking being a bit like the soldier, uh, coming to the, instantly coming to the, oh, the person giving me all the information must be the, the one that can turn into anyone. <laughs> what do you think about Ken's motives in this scene? 
when he talks Mona down, he's like... He doesn't have any. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He I doesn't. thought that would be interesting I, to talk about. It would be interesting to talk about if he had a want. He doesn't have a want, therefore he doesn't have motives. Uh, like he's. This is just them doing an approximation of what they think would be cool for Ken to do. Like that's the way Ken is written throughout the last two episodes of this. Because I was wondering if does he genuinely want to understand and help Mona, or is this just a sort of I can control Mona and get information out of her? From his actions, it is clear that he wants to basically control and and a word that's been thrown around on the subreddit and also in in some of the documents here manipulate the uh, the script followers or whatever we want to call them, the superheroes of this world. Um, Mona being one of them, Malik, obviously all, basically all of the, uh, projects throughout this episode. And it, there, there's like this whole sort of theme of you're my friend, we're friends. And it's really, it's stupid. Ken putting on the nice it, it, face, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, it's done so childishly, right? It doesn't treat them as humans. It doesn't treat them as intelligent people. It's like he's trying to like game the universe. We're like, if we're friends, they won't kill me, right? If we're friends, I can make them do this thing. And it it feels very disconnected with reality to me. I like some of the good cop stuff he does with Mona. And I like that he tries to like, you know, tr be like, nobody wants to hurt you. And he's, and he's like, you know, trying to talk her down and he's doing like reasonable negotiating tactics, but he's, do he's like, it's being acted in a way where like, you know, he's trying to resolve a situation, but like, he needs to be in control of that situation. And I'm fine with him doing that. It's just, and this is the thing I've said before, I'll try not to repeat myself too much this episode. He, there's no reason for him to be doing any of this. Give him a want, make him want to never be out of control of his own life again and do that through controlling these people. And then suddenly you humanize him and you make it so you understand why he's doing all of this stuff. Anyway, uh, what do you, what did you guys think of that? Did you did you feel like he had motivation? Nima, how much do you disagree with everything that <laughs> Jesse has just said <laughs> on, on a no, scale actually, of one to ten? <laughs> I actually, I pretty much agree with that. This this scene is, yeah, Ken is just there being Ken. Ken, he's introduced to us as a uh, computer IT hacker guy. There's the whole learning systems and uh, enjoying you know, working out how they work. And I think Ken learning and being interested in Blackwing up to this point makes sense from that character premise. But we are starting to get into the point where it's like, well, that's a character premise that explains why you get interested in learning how to do something and control a system, but doesn't explain why once you have that ability, you keep going with it. Yeah, I feel like, uh, Jesse's mentioned this, I think, earlier in the season. I feel like there are some missing steps to get Ken to this to the point in where he is in yeah. the last two episodes. And, you know, I want to em emphasize that I'm fine with Ken doing a heel turn. I'm fine with Ken becoming the bad guy. I just want him to do it for a reason. Like, I know a lot of people were upset that Ken was, like, betraying Barton, that suddenly they made him into a bad guy. I'm not upset that he's a bad guy. I'm upset that he's not a bad guy with a good reason. Yeah, I feel like it's a, it's a consequence of there being so much going on in this season. They wanted to introduce new characters like Mona uh, and also Hobbs, Tina, etc., etc., and that Ken sort of got lost in the shuffle there a little bit in terms of, yeah, he spent most of the season in this taxi. Um, 
So should we move on to the scene with Mona and uh, the sort of yeah, introduction please, to yeah, Mona? They're... What do you guys make of Mona? She's a very quirky and uh, interesting character in terms of the way she's introduced here. I find her a little bit annoying. I think she's pre- she's presented as childish and childlike for a reasonable, reasonably good reason, but I feel like they almost overdo it a little bit. But overall, I'd find I don't actually have strong opinions on Mona. We've like Mona's been talked about a lot through the whole season to date, but we've never seen her in uh, in human form, so we've never been able well, to interact. Very briefly at the end of the first episode, but where she told Dirk to find the boy, but oh, yeah, yeah, since then, no. That's seeing her more than interacting with her. Yeah, we never really got a sense of who Mona was. I think this feels like the introduction episode to Mona, really. Yeah. They, my, so, so in my notes, uh, watching through the episode, my favourite moment with Mona where was where she explains that if she wanted to kill them, why would she worry about... Because uh, uh, Friedkin taunts us and say, yo, we have to have the guards here. What if you turned into a bear? And she's like, why would I turn into a silly little bear? Yeah, if I wanted to kill you, I'd turn into an aircraft carrier. <laughs> and it's like, I, I enjoyed that because it really takes the idea of, if you're a shapeshifter who can become anything, and so shows do this, I'm sure it's a trope that's written down, that they become you know, easy to film things. And she's like she's aware of that as seems and she's like no if i was going to kill you and i can become anything then i'd become something that isn't plot escapable it's just like the act of turning into that thing would kill you i feel like the show doesn't have the budget for mona to turn into an aircraft carrier no <laughs> no which makes it a great line yeah it's it's the idea of it that sells yeah. it rather than the the like it's not even presented as a threat you you watch it you never get the sense of of oh she's actually going to do that or she she could do that she's just putting it out there bottle to uh to friedkin's own hypothetical of oh you could turn into a bear and we need to defend ourselves and she's like no (laughs) i'm a shapeshifter yeah overall i feel like mona could be a really interesting character as we get to know but there's just not enough of that yet so i like her I agree with you. That line is fantastic. Um, I really like that instead of viewing herself as a shapeshifter, she views herself as an actress. I think that's a really interesting and cool twist on the idea um, that she's such a good actress. She can be anything, but she doesn't know what she's supposed to be at any given time. I feel that's like that's true. meta, maybe yeah. a little bit like that feels like to me like Alexia Fast. Like, what do I do with this character? He's <laughs> so reading the script. I don't know. I'm not sure that's intentional. But that's just... <laughs> I, really. I, I feel like it is because like you have a holistic detective, a holistic assassin, and now you have a holistic actress. Yeah. Like, I, like it absolutely is on brand with the universe and and what they're doing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not on brand. I just thought that there's an interesting kind of meta reading. I, I'm really big into meta readings for some reason. But, yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, I would have to guess that part of her character designs from the beginning is like that wording. And I I think that she, like her existence sort of fleshes that universe out more of like what other holistic jobs are there where there's a person that doesn't really understand what they're supposed to be doing, but they, you know, they, they do this weird supernatural thing um, because they feel, they feel like it's the, it's, you know, it feels right to do it at that time in that way. Yeah, I, I I think the way she's played childlike, it it does get irritating from from moment to moment. I think but that that's like not, they, again, that's fairly on brand for Blackwing subjects, so, who've been infantilized sort of since birth, since yeah, they've been treated like children their whole lives. So yeah, 
Yeah, uh, I think that's true. They mentioned that she forgets who she is when she's an object for too long. And I think they were trying to bring some of that sort of mental instability into the character. I like that, you know, you feel like she is ultimately pacifistic. Like she doesn't want to hurt anyone. She doesn't want to, to make anyone feel bad. She's just trying to do what she feels is the thing she's supposed to be doing. Yeah, I I, I really like Mona too, actually, uh, on a sort of, I think conceptually, I think I, I really like the whole holistic actress thing and the sort of, that they have a lot of fun with the concept. My only problem is that in a way, I feel like going forward, it almost kind of had the potential to break the show in a way, because the fact that Mona can turn into anything that Dirk or company need feels almost like, she, she's almost like Deus Ex Machina written as a character potentially if they abused that. But I feel I feel like you have to trust that uh, whoever you know, writes say the animated series wouldn't be tempted to do that with her. They'd be yeah. happy to have like a whole season where she's just the 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 the, 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 the toy or whatever the parent Yeah, yeah. She she need, she wouldn't have to be a strong enough character to not become a a tool of the other characters. I mean, the way that they tend to write the show, it feels like instead of doing that, they would just, they would like almost lampshade it. They would basically have her be like, I'm going to be a chair for the next six episodes. And they're like, Mona, we could really use your help. And she's like, nope, I need to be this chair. (laughs) And then like episode seven, it's like, bam, that's so smart that you were a chair this whole time because now we really need you to be a chair um, <laughs> we can reach the ceiling yeah, and change the light bulb. I, yeah like unclear why like but once it happens you're like oh that was so good but this, like i feel like that's how they try to write this show is like oh there's all of these obvious solutions that the audience is coming up with and it would be so great if you could do that but that's not the script and the script says you need to be this other thing that seems useless and annoying but really, it's actually the thing you really needed. Well, you, you, you could even take that a step further with everybody basically getting to the point of like, okay, she's a chair. Let's let's not think about her or worry about her. And then it's like, oh, if only we had somebody in that room. Oh, wait, Mona's in there. She's the yeah. chair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there are some other parts. There's a bit more. Being- There's a confrontation, a mini confrontation between... Friedkin and Ken as they're leaving, where Ken starts to piece together how Wendemore came about and what's going on with the Cardenas home and Project Moloch being the key to everything. And there's a really great uh, delivery from uh, Dustin Milligan as Hugo, where he's where, where Ken is like going and things like, you follow me? And he's like, yeah, yes. He says yes in a way that feels like the most... I really don't get this, but I'm saying this just so you will, we can continue the conversation I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> So I think regardless of what you think of Hugo uh, as a Friedkin's character, I think he play, he plays that bit really well. <laughs> and, no, I think um, the actor does a good job. I agree. Yeah. And so there's this mini argument where Friedkin, his ego starts to take a hit. And it's like, you know, you've been acting like, because there's a scene earlier where Hugo starts talking to uh, Mona and then Ken pushes him out of the chair because Ken wants to sit he's down like, and be yeah, yeah. in the center and in charge. And he's like, you're acting like you're in charge, but you know, you're, my, you're supposed to help me. And, uh, and then Ken points out that actually you gave me the same clearance. So we are equals in this program now. I think that line is beyond stupid. <laughs> I'll tell you why once you're done. I'll let you finish. Sorry. Yeah, and so then the sequence ends with Lieutenant Assistant, who is the character in fighting that annoys me more because I feel like he's annoying. And he comes out uh, just running away like a coward and saying, Knights are coming! And uh, the, the Blackwing guys with guns start shooting and um, Ken orders the other Blackwing men to secure Project Moloch. 
Freakin just sort of stands there feeling a bit kind of dazed and uh, not really sure what he's doing anymore. Or uh, maybe he's wondering what his motivation is. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so, so that's really the end of the bank. So it ends with the knights coming through, uh, the corgi running away, little triangle breaking through and his men just causing chaos and slaughtering Blackwing men like they're like knife through butter, basically. The, the Blackwing have no sort of resistance to any of the Kellum knights because their armor is made out of some weird magical sort of thing that doesn't the sort of deflects bullets essentially. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what were you going to say, Jesse, about the stupid line? Yeah, yeah. So this this episode is like really uh, bringing home the conflict between Ken and Friedkin. Between I, the the chair standing up moment, I think is a good moment where he's just like, "Get out of the chair! I, I need to, like this is like, what are you doing?" I need apolog- I like the way Friedkin sort of meekly apologizes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and then later he does a random starts getting be confused that Ken is in charge, even though if that's beyond obvious at this point that Ken is acting like he's in charge. He should have brought it up earlier, in my opinion. Yeah. I do wish that Ken had asked for the soldiers to leave, because he should know that they're useless, and it would have humanized him better and made Mona more comfortable with him. I think that would have been a good manipulation tactic, or negotiation yeah. tactic. I think that, that him not doing that kind of felt like, oh, well, I guess he's not that smart. If you look back at that scene, by the way, the soldier that's on the right closest to Mona, he's holding some kind of uh, fire extinguisher or some kind of um sort of it's not like a gun like the others are holding and he just looks like the most like i really don't want to be here (laughs) (laughs) which is great the little detail from the actor playing him so i I really like that (laughs) but yeah the idea that giving someone the same level of clearance gives them the same level of authority in an organization is such a childlike understanding of how any organization hierarchical structure works that feels like something Max Landis does because it's clear he doesn't understand how a top secret government agency would work. In my I mean, it, it's clear he doesn't understand how like any sort of management structure works. Uh, <laughs> like, and I don't know, I don't know what why that is, but like, like it, well, from his entire the way Max Landis was introduced to the show was that his mate basically hired him. I see. Yeah, like it doesn't feel like he's ever had a job where you have like a series of managers above you that are all managing each other down. Like, I mean, maybe because I've worked in tech, I have a better understanding of how those hierarchies work. I'm sure in you know other forms of business there are plenty of other jobs you could have where that happens. I, I think that in Hollywood, especially when you're like in a directorial position, it's probably a lot more loose and a lot different. Um, and there's a lot more politics about- Especially any other son of John Landis as well. But like, yeah, this this idea that like Friedkin accidentally promoted him, like what would have been a much better arc for that, I think would have been Ken having more interactions with the mysterious woman who's gonna show up in the next episode and her promoting him and her seeing that he's better and then Friedkin then having a more of a revenge arc like I created you and now I have to destroy you because you're ruining my you're ruining my thing like I was in charge and now I'm not in charge and and like you're the reason for it it links back to what you were saying about earlier about um in a previous episode about the lack of oversight over Friedkin it's yeah. It, well, it's not just the lack of oversight. It's the unexplained fear he has through much yeah. of the episodes. It's the stress of screwing up when clearly there's no repercussions for it. Um, there's just a lot of like fuzzy. If you're squinting and not thinking too hard about it, Blackwing makes sense. But as soon as you apply any level of scrutiny, it all falls apart. Um, it just feels lazy, 
And, you know, this is more of that. I like that Ken gets more power than Friedkin. It just feels like a really dumb and, and lazy way of him getting there. And so that's that's my biggest problem with that line and like where we yeah, go. Yeah, again, like we said, missing steps. Okay, so should we move on to the Bart, Panther, and Priest scene uh, at the uh, Cardenas house? So yeah, so Freakin has just been sort of knocked out, which I guess is by Mona, which is why he's not in this scene. Uh, so, um, so so Priest sees through his binoculars that uh, Bart and uh, Panto are walking towards him. He recognizes Bart. It's interesting here that he asks Ken for advice because it's clear, and they sort of imply this in the show, that Priest has some history with Bart uh, because yeah. it's clear that they know each other and that he and strongly implied that he's the one that sort of brought Bart in. Why do you think he defers to sort of Ken, oh, I need your advice because you survived with her the longest? Whereas you know, Priest has also sort of survived with Bart for quite a while, obviously in the sort of context of a government facility and, you know, you never know, oh, the universe needed to be in Blackwing for whatever reason. But um, I, I don't know. I feel like he seems to think Ken's position is exceptional and he himself has, um, seems to have spent a lot of time with Bart as well. And why does he think, why does he see Ken as superior to him in this situation? Yeah, I don't necessarily think he's spent a lot of time with Bart or maybe not a lot of time with Bart recently. Like he talks about... Ah. Uh, uh, you know, maybe we could go get some ice cream. Like he's he's treating her not just as the uh, as naive and childlike that she's presented, but as a literal child. Yeah, he definitely like, infantilizes yeah, her a little bit. In this yeah, he, I I got the impression that he knows and is clearly very respectful of her abilities, which is really refreshing because Ken has been uh, uncompromisingly shown as a badass all the way through to here. Uh, and for him to suddenly be like, no, we are absolutely not going to muck around with weapons uh, with Bart. You know, everybody, put your guns down. We don't want a chain reaction. Like, he knows and understands her abilities. Sorry, you said uh, Ken, you meant Priest. Priest, yes. Uh, Ken's in the scene too, though. Ken's in the scene too. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that yeah. was... Yeah. He's like yes. pulls his way in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm absolutely talking about Priest here. Uh, you're right. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's a great scene. I, I totally yeah. agree with you on that. In terms of how much Priest has actually interacted with Bard on a lengthy basis, that's not clear. Like, you know, he brought her in as a child and maybe he interacted with her you know, for a day at a time or an afternoon at a time over the course of weeks or months or even years. But, uh, but that still leaves Ken as somebody who interacted with her for all day, every day for however long season one lasted, uh, which may well be reasonable to uh, to call unique. One thing I don't understand is how can Bart interact with Priest for any length of time without feeling the urge to kill him? Yeah. That's one thing that, like, like she feels the urge to kill anyone who is, like, But this is not... the new Bart. Bart makes it very clear that, look, I don't kill people anymore after her sort of interaction with Susie and later also with Pento as well in the cell. That's a great point for this scene and why she doesn't want to kill anyone in this scene. But if they've interacted before, that's where I'm coming from is like, I don't, I don't know. It just feels, it feels weird. It feels like uh, a little bit of plot armor for Priest. But I would like it better if Priest had never interacted with Bart before, but I don't know. Well, it's a great, but he's certainly mistrustful of Priest in this scene. Yes, she certainly, she certainly is. Would it also work if Bart was a bit more explicit about, I feel like I should kill you, but I'm not doing that now. 
like he has he has pretty much said that about somebody or some situation earlier. So. But yeah, Priest asks her, and she basically says nope. I don't feel. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm good either way with it. I guess I'm. I'm. I mean, I'm kind. Of, I like. I understand that she's trying to like resist her urge to killing, and maybe that's caused her to not even feel it anymore. Or maybe the universe is like giving her a slight reprieve before what happens at the end of the episode. But I, it's more. It's more about the past history as opposed to the present. Uh, for my mm. confusion. So then the next part of this scene is a uh, priest gets out. Uh, he says, "There's someone who wants to talk to you," and it's uh, Ken. He's got. He gets him out on his iPad. Basically, he, I, I assume, uses whatever Blackbeard uses for, like, a, is it a Zoom call or Skype call? We've been doing a lot of those uh, lately <laughs> during this lockdown. But, um, but yeah, Ken, uh, and, and he's really delighted to see Bart, but he's delighted to see Ken. And, and she still sees Ken as a friend, despite this sort of absence. I like that she apologizes as well for um, leaving Ken behind uh, during the tank attack. It is, it did, we never get to really see that, and uh, that's a little bit of a shame, because that sounds like an awesome scene. Yeah, yeah, that that actually annoyed me in this scene because it was something that was we felt was obviously missing when we were talking about episode one, but we're now midway through episode nine. This is the only other time it really gets addressed, yeah. Yeah, the, the circumstances of that are now like, okay, we, we didn't get to see that, we're moved on, and to suddenly be brought back and reminded of what presumably was quite a cool, neat, but, you know... If, escaping and leaving Ken behind and you're know, killing everybody or, or whatever uh, for that to be to be reminded that we didn't get that cool scene just feels like oh now you're just teasing us yeah <laughs> so the whole tension of this scene is is Bart gonna choose uh, her old friend Ken who wants her to do go back to Black Ring, which is something that she really doesn't want to do or is she gonna pick her new friend she's come to know and, and respect and trust uh, who wants it to go to the Wendy moment for the big fairy tale happy ending? And there's 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 a bit of tension, but uh, yeah, she chooses uh, Panto, and it's like, I I really like Panto in this scene as well. And, uh, they first approach, and Priest is like, a, "Who are you?" And he's like, "I am a normal person from this world, much like yourself." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, that, that was fun. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, there's also great lines like this in that show. But Pantavanto is really awesome in this scene. I like the way he stands up for Bart as well. Yeah. Priest soldiers sort of do what Priest does to uh, <laughs> to Friedkin, but to him, if that makes sense. So they sort of, because Priest seemed seem previously to show he had an issue with orders if he didn't agree with them. And now this time, it's clear that the kind of Priest's men don't agree with his orders because they start attacking Panto against his wishes. Uh, and Panto is able to see it coming and basically cuts them all down with his scissors because he is the best swordsman in Wendable, as repeated many times in the show. Not not unnecessarily, <laughs> but they, they do a good job of showing why Panto is so good in a fight. Eva gets a, a great little um, cut on um, uh, Priest's face and uh, Rip Alan Tudyk's face, unfortunately, but <laughs> for the rest of this uh, season. But um, yeah. yeah, he does survive. Um, do you, What do you guys feel about the way this scene it? And also... Bart still offers Ken to come with them to Wendemore, but obviously he he's not interested in doing that. So, yeah. so I have a couple things about this scene. Um, I think this scene builds up a very the very tragic uh, fairy tale happy ending for Bart. Uh, I I think it 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 works well in the sequence. It just makes her a very tragic character uh, later on. I really think it's adorable how she kisses the iPad. I, yeah. I she does she's she does she has great moments in this sequence talking with Ken. The Panto fight sequence is cool. I do think that Priest being like, I'm like, you're not getting in there. I think that moment is kind of like, you just, you you started with nobody can stop her. 
Uh, and it feels now, very stubborn from Priest, like I said. Sort of yeah, and like pulling the gun out feels dumb, frankly. And then yeah. I, I don't like it. Doesn't get finalized until episode ten. But like the face cut and what they were trying to make Priest into and make him this much more like cartoonishly villainous character, um, I felt was stupid. I'm like, I just do. I, I kind of wish that he, they had gone with a more uh, almost Jamie Lannister route and had him like cut Priest's hand off or something. Yeah, something more practical that he would use rather than just his face. Because uh, Alan, Tudyk, I guess it's kind of there's a novelty of having Alan Tudyk's face cut in half because he's you know a yeah. fairly well known actor, but still. Yeah, it's to create this horrifying visual that that again you, you'll see in the next episode, and like clearly they were gonna like play that up further, and he was gonna go even more crazy, and that, like that seemed to be the direction his character was. It going. feels very comic booky. I agree with you on that, and uh, yeah. yeah, I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, okay, but like this is this is feeling silly, but yeah, I I I I, I like a lot of the other things in that sequence. Do you want to do the rest of the Panto and Bart stuff? Yeah, let's wrap that up. Let's just stay with them. Okay, yeah, because they're, they're fun. Um, so we, uh, the next moment, time we see them is when they go into Wendemore and Bart is reacting to seeing Wendemore for the first time. She's like, wow, the moon's... Have you seen this moon? It's really big. And Fanta says, uh, to me, that's a uh, normal Bart. <laughs> and your moon's the tiny, weird one. And then Bart's like, yeah, I guess the moon is weird. I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> and... The Bart has intuition to go a certain way down the road, but Panto disagrees, saying, and then that's not where, you know, my family is going to be. Panto wants to go to the Trust farmlands, and uh, Bart wants to go basically where the uh, Dingdemore castle place is. Uh, and then Silas shows up just at the right time, and there's a sort of reunion scene uh, where um, they they uh, passionately kiss and make up, and uh, Bart uh, is sort of like, oh, Silas, I heard about you. Your mum's uh, an asshole, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really it's, yeah it's great. It's, it's nice to see this little trio, and uh, Silas, Silas doesn't interact with Bart very much, but uh, they all seem to accept each other, and uh, Bart's happy to have him. Yeah him along and then they build up sizes like um the you know our parents are about to basically kill each other let's go stop that and uh Bart's like, oh this is now we're going the way that i originally wanted to go oh fair enough <laughs> Which is a, it's a great little kind of um kind of like a bar and the universe guiding her and then she's like i didn't even need to say anything we ended up being the right way anyway <laughs> I... I guess if Bart hadn't said anything panto might have taken them off before silas arrived so it's a sort yeah. of coincidence kind of thing yeah, I, I love I love that she wants to go one way. The universe is dragging her, and then Silas appears in that direction. That is the way they want to go. They ADR'd a line from like the top down shot of her being like, yeah. "Well, that's where I wanted to go," and I felt like that just was a little too cute. It like buttoned the scene in a way that like, yeah, you don't need to like rub the audience's face in it. We get it. We already got it. I don't. But know. It makes I, sense I, for Bart to that. say that in character. It feels like like Bart would sort of re- at least remark upon that. She wouldn't. Maybe if they just had a sort of shrug, like, "Oh, okay, then let's go this way," it would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Which is basically, uh, I feel with it. It's such a small thing to me, and, and yeah. I always like hearing more of Fiona Reef. I think she really kills it in oh, she's not this whole episode, but both series basically. So the final scene with this is uh, where they arrive almost too late, and everyone is dead apart from Freya and Jepham, and. Uh, Panto and Silas basically beg them to stop fighting each other. 
and they reveal that um they're lovers so the the two ma- the matriarch and the patriarch of the two families discover for the first time that their children are you know in a sort of gay relation homosexual relationship and they're fine they seem fine with it which is kind of cool so it's weird that Wendemore is a place where public executions are quite commonplace but homosexuality is sort of genuinely accepted so it's, it's got a one-up on saudi arabia i guess but <laughs> okay that's a controversial statement for me but yeah <laughs> yeah uh I, no i mean i think i think that's fair i i do think i mean obviously it's a the, the show is a product of its time and i'm glad to see that they're treating it that way it's it's great to see them treating it that way i do think it's a, a little bit I don't even know how to describe it as unbelievable, but a rural American boy in the fifties, I don't think has that opinion. Well, um, we also don't know where Francis originally came from, though. So there's a little true, bit of true, 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 true. But I mean, he was he was raised from a from being a baby uh, by that family. Um, I like so it from the perspective because I could easily imagine an alternate version of this where there's a sort of Romeo Juliet thing where the parents are really angry that their kid that their two kids are in love and they're gay and that sort of i could imagine i could imagine this if this was done like maybe 10 or 20 years earlier this series i could imagine that them being gay would be a much more sort of oh shocking kind of thing and they would be well, I, I do think that there is a place for media that that's handling that because i'm sure that, that oh yeah totally but i feel like that's sort of not we've got other stuff to deal with in this <laughs> <laughs> sure i mean i I like seeing more media, certainly, where it's it's a non-issue. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's shot uh, in a way where it's like a little bit in the audience's face, and it's kind of a shot almost in a jokey way in that sense. But it's a, it, it it's still like really fun. But yeah, for the characters, it's a non-issue. Nobody blinks at it, and I think that's really cool. Yeah. So it's really Panto who kind of uh, convinces them, and of course, because uh, Jeff thought that Panto was dead, basically. And the fact that he's still there sort of convinces him to bury the hatchet with Freya, which makes sense. Not not quite sure why Freya climbs down. I guess maybe she just gives up and sort of, you know, Panto sort of, and Silas especially sort of convinced, even though she hates Silas. But she doesn't live too much longer because the knights arrive and they, they notice that, hey, they all kill each other and we barely have to kill anyone. So they kill the remaining four. And uh, yeah, Panto and Silas go down really quickly. And it's sort of, I guess they get caught on guard so Panto doesn't really get to the, the chance to defend it himself. And there's a shock. Uh, Silas goes down. Panto's horrified. Panto goes down. Bart is horrified. You f- you definitely feel for Bart in the, in this scene because it's the sort of moment where she kind of snaps almost and goes back on her whole uh, non-murder policy because <laughs> uh, she feels not just that um, the universe wants her to kill; she wants to kill um, all these knights who have just taken away her new best friend, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's it, Bart's a very tragic character in this in this scene and uh, i like the way also the little detail that all the there's this army of knights coming in that have been cgi'd in and they sort of see bart pick up the they sort of see bart approach him and they even though it's just like, obviously because all their bullets have missed because they've got ak-47s but they uh <laughs> they all in a row even the ones at the very back seem to sort of trudge, trudge back like in fear of, of bart uh, thinking like well this lady but they don't work on her, so that's all we got. <laughs> Murder isn't working, and it's all we're good at. <laughs> well, I want to know what you guys. I mean, you made some notes about it, and it you, it feels like you felt like it wasn't good. But the way these deaths happen without fanfare, these are not heroic deaths. These are sudden, tragic. Especially for Panto and Silas, who are sort of you know main character. Well, 
Panto, I definitely think, is the main character. Silas. No, they, they're very, they're all they're all they're all major characters. Um, but Panto and Silas, especially, they've gotten a lot of screen time, and they're they are killed very unceremoniously. Um, I think we do get Bart's reaction, which is very heartbreaking, and that makes it that I almost feel like um, the way Panto also goes down very easily as well. Yeah, I get he gets caught off guard, I guess, and you know, seeing Silas being hit first, that would do that to him. I don't think it's I don't think it's out of character. It sort of makes sense, but I feel it's a little. Especially because we don't know what's going to happen in the next episode. Although it hinted that um, none of this matters, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is hinted strongly that none of this matters. I do think that the uh, around Bart, human life has less value. And I think that's sort of shown by their deaths. So there's a brief scene where Todd has a parabolitis attack and Amanda basically teaches him how to use his you know, harness parabolized like she has been doing to get like some barbed wire i don't think he ever uses the barbed wire later on so it's more just sort of this is what they had to hand when they shot this scene but um <laughs> yeah uh there's, there's, there's a couple of good lines from the rowdy free and it's like um because they're going to the pool uh, i think it's grips has a few good lines in this he says something like uh, how many are coming this way oh ten thousand of them i counted really quick <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is the line i think that um sophia pointed out a few episodes ago that shows that grips is really good with numbers uh, oddly which is a nice little subtle character trait that keeps coming up i think the next key bit of interest is when they actually show up there and Susie is finally caught up with them as well because they hear her laughing in the background. And Grips has another great line. She's like, "Nobody makes me feel afraid of laughter." <laughs> <laughs> I definitely laughed at that. that was yeah, and uh, th- yeah, there's a lot of great. Line. And um, I like how. So the original plan is that Dirk is going to go with the Rowdy Free as a sort of strike team. I think Todd originally wants to go, so Mandis is going to hold the portal. But she needed. She said she needed more time with Wacky to really get on top of this because it's so painful she's just not uh, confident enough to do it and so Todd sort of agrees to help and she's like well if you're telling me you can't go through with Dirk and so so we, okay then it's just going to be Dirk and Rowdy Free and then she's like oh no Susie's coming this way and I think there's a nice moment when Martin sort of asks Amanda what she wants them to do which is again sort of leading up Martin so like, you're the leader now and she says look no go off and hold off Susie to buy us some time basically so for the process of elimination Dirk's the only one left so he has to go and Dirk is sort of like, Fracting's the last place I want to go. And then uh, we hear <laughs> Susie Borton saying, Dirk, gently, where are you? I, want, I actually want to kill you. And then Dirk's like, well, cut it on second thoughts. <laughs> he gives a very sort of rambling kind of thing. And Todd sort of calms him down. Uh, there's an odd moment where, I'm not sure if you feel it, where Amanda and Todd are clearly in huge pain opening the portal. And Dirk sort of like hesitates about whether he's confident enough to go for it. I know it's like, you know, childhood trauma from Blackwing and everything. But he sees his friends in pain. And I feel like he, he shouldn't have hesitated for quite as long as he did. But that's just my personal. I can, it, it, it's not like a huge thing. It's just a little, little thing. Yeah, they had to give the, uh, they had to do the don't panic line. You know, it, it was. They do it earlier as well. Um, when yeah. uh, when Todd has a parabolized attack, Amanda sort of casually tells that. But this one, it's very obvious because it's a big dramatic close-up when um, Dirk says it. I thought there was one very early in the episode too, but yeah. I don't remember that one. I I didn't write it down at the time I was going to and then I didn't. Quite a few moments of characters would tell each other not to panic. (laughs) Yes. Those words or other words. But um, Susie's finally decided to to have some fun with them, basically. And uh, the Rowdies are more than happy to go face the challenge. Dirk is scared (laughs) shitless. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, understandably somewhat because Susie is fucking terrifying at this point she is I don't feel like the Rowdy 3 makes sense as a holding her off force 
they, they don't really have many options at this point. It feels a bit... No, tough. they don't. But, like, I still feel like you're sending them off to their deaths in that sequence. Well, that quite, that's sort of why the moment when Martin asks, what do you want us to do, has a bit more impact. Because, obviously, they know that if they go with Dirk, then Todd and Amanda are basically going to be at Susie's mercy. Yeah, it's unclear to me how how much time they can realistically buy, though. It's that, that's just, like, the only thing I'm thinking about, is, like, like the three of you versus this crazy, powerful mage. Are you buying more than 10 seconds? Like, uh, and again, we'll see it in, in episode 10, but, like, at, at, in that moment, I'm like, uh, you guys need to be stronger than that. The biggest thing with this entire sequence, start to finish, is I feel like we're losing Todd as an avatar for the uh, audience. I'm, I'm very frustrated by that. Like Todd in in season one and in uh, most of season two is like this very flawed character, but he's he he is having weird things happen to his world, and Dirk is the cause of that. In season two, he's trying to re to like you know get Dirk back. And I think that he's, you know, in my view, he's still kind of an avatar for returning fans and them being like, come on, do more holistic stuff. That's what we like. Um, and now he has superpowers uh, via pararibulitis. And like there is something cool about the arc of turning your weakness into your strength and channeling that. There's kind of something about weird... him repairing his relationship with his sister. The fact that they both got it sort of helps on them on that front. They've already kind of made up. Yeah, I don't, and like, I feel like the the prison sequence is the best for that, and that he's yeah. trying to become better. It's unclear to me that he has done that yet, because he still hasn't really, like, shown that he cares about other people's lives. Again, um, it's the screen time thing, and um, yeah, I think they a, do a good job of showing that Amanda sort of has forgiven Todd enough to sort of trust him and sort of work with him, and especially in that sequence where she's teaching him how to harness parabulitis. I agree. There's some weird anti-medicine undertones to that sequence, if you think about it, but um, I agree. <laughs> yeah, Dirk Price goes for the medicine, which is cool, because Dirk is actually being quite considerate there. And it's like, no, no, let this happen. But yeah, Farah was also in some ways an avatar for the audience. I mean, you could even make the argument that Amanda kind of was as well as like... Almost like we have the characters split apart. We have the main three characters, Todd, Dirk, and uh, Farah in a way. Are basically the main three characters sort of at this maybe Amanda to an extent too but they all feel at the end of this all in three separate sort of um location they are yeah but like um my frustration is that like they're all at a level of supernatural ability that is that, well, that maybe makes Farrah it, isn't, but yeah I think Farah is like with how much she can kick ass I mean we'll, we'll I, get to I, just after this but yeah Farah is certainly not I don't think she's supernatural but she's certainly not normal in, in her abilities there Yeah no you're right not supernatural but but I I find her more difficult to relate to in in that she has had a ton of security training she's like clearly yeah. you know a bodyguard uh that that's that's like a, a greater arc issue that I have with the end of season 2 and and this episode kind of puts the nail in the coffin for that of like everyone has these set this like set of skills and they all fill this role in a way where like the, the parabulous uh supernatural stuff with Todd just like makes it so that he now feels more like a superhero than just a guy whose life got ruined by Dirk. Yeah, I almost sort of wish they leaned more on the fact that he's got like the um air gun thing rather than him having to use parabulitis in a way. Oh 
but I, I think I agree that it's a systemic thing. It's not like, oh, this would have been better Tokus would have been the audience avatar if he'd gone through the portal instead and Dirk had stayed and done something else. I feel like it has sort of has to be Dirk because he's the one that knows Black he's the one that sort of was given this task in the first place by Mona slash Wakti. From the, the way they've structured the plot, it sort of seems like Dirk is the one that has to go in there. And yeah, the original plan uh, was to have Nervous go too, but it, they sort of go for the more personal kind of thing, or they sort of engineer it so that Dirk has to go in alone and has to overcome, again, has to overcome his lack of confidence or something, even though we sort of, it's a little thing, but we kind of, he's kind of over that at this point. Yeah, and I think systemic is the right word. It's just a power creep among the other characters, which makes Dirk feel much less consequential. When you have Amanda, like Amanda out over, like outpowers Dirk tenfold in yeah. Wendemore. And like the, the Rowdy Three also are like a, a force to be reckoned with and are oh, no dude. longer, they're no longer agents of chaos. They're directed and they're basically Amanda's uh, secondary power. And so uh, Dirk is inconsequential, whereas in season one, like he didn't have control of his power, but he was always the source of the weird power stuff going on in their group. It, it was revolving around his holisticness. And I feel like season two, especially by this point, drifted has drifted so far away from that. That's a really good point. I know I, I, I'm just processing that uh, as an idea. And I think it makes a, a really good observation about the focus of season two, uh, and I mean, well, maybe we'll the lack of about, focus. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about exactly how how much season two uh, compares to season one, and and uh, overall fan reactions uh, next episode or even later, uh, maybe. But uh, that's I can think going to be a relevant point that season one had that focus of Dirk, and season two didn't quite as much. Uh, and and part of that was Dirk's earlier self doubt and hesitations, but this is this feels like a, a second part of that. It's not even necessarily a lack of focus, perhaps, as a a change of focus away from Dirk and uh, onto the wider you know, holistic and Blackwing subjects uh, group. Should we cover the B plot, uh, which is uh, in the in the quarry with? Uh... Faratina versus the mage. Uh, so yeah, let's wrap. Let's wrap. Yeah, yeah, there, are two, there are two scenes really here. So the, the first one is because uh, the previous episode, the mage knocked them out. I think he stuck up on them, knocked them out, and they wake up, and the mage has got. So he, the mage clearly does not even really see them as a threat. It's very clear that he underestimates them. Uh, Farah and um, Tina sort of look and sort of realize that they have really no hope. And uh, Farah has a line here that I find very odd, where she says. Oh, we need a plan because I am not losing two fights in one year or something like that. And I'm like, there's more at stake here than your ego, Farrah. <laughs> it, it just feels like a very odd um, line. It's both like, what was, I guess the other fight was against Priest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I very much took that as just reestablishing, no, fa despite the fact that the last time we saw her in a, in a fight was against Priest and she lost, that she is actually a badass and. It's basically her way of saying, you know what, fuck this. This time it's personal. Yeah, it was a fun amp up speech. Like, I, I, I thought it was a funny line. I thought it was a funny trying to amp herself up is immediately deflated. Um, yeah, she's like, up as well. And Tina is like, yeah, we're going to save Hobbs and we're going to beat this bastard. And then she gets up and struggles over, does like two steps and falls over. <laughs> and then Farrah's like, okay, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that is almost what happens. So, so they it feels like they do the best they can because um, 
I guess they can't really call the police in that sort of setup earlier because Blackwing's looking for them. It would have been interesting if they had sort of done that as a sort of last stake sort of thing. I, I guess it would have felt maybe a bit cheap to have them sort of just arrest the major. major it would be cool to see the major cause massive amounts of destruction, but I sort of understand that we need to end this B-plot. All we've got is like a couple of days to shoot in a quarry. So <laughs> we've got we got Tyler yeah. Bean, we've got uh, the guy playing the mage, uh, we've got Jada Shit, and we've got Mantris playing Tina. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got four actors, we've got a car, we've got a quarry. Let's end this B-plot in, in the same episode as well. I very much enjoyed um, the mage, uh, John Hanna, in this episode. Yeah. It- the character's a lot of fun when Don Hanna is eating the scenery. And there was that middle bit where he discovered that his whole reality was invented by a boy and was a fiction. And he was had this whole existential crisis, which gave him a plot arc, or a character arc rather, but it just wasn't actually fun to watch. Uh, whereas this is back to the mage going like, you know what? I just really like hurting people individually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, why have I been taking such a hands-off role lately? He says something yeah. like that. Like, um, just, well, it's no fun getting armies to do it. You got to be a bit more personal. This yeah. is way better. Uh, <laughs> why do I even care about Wendemore in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I almost wish to get into the end that this is a B plot and it feels so divorced from what's happening in Wendemore is the big issue. It does. Yeah. Well, I don't. The more I think about it, the less I agree because he's destroying the portal back. But we've established that Amanda has got like two places, which at least where she can use a portal and get everyone back. Yeah, I yeah. No, you're but, right. But you're the right. thing is, Quarantina don't know this. They know all they know is Tom Durker in Wendemore, and they're probably in trouble. And if it, they they if, as far as they know, if the major succeeds, then that could be it. They could be effectively gone, and they're, they're, yeah. they're well, dead. They, they, from the mage's perspective, he thinks that he's going to be sealing the portal between realities. But as a viewer, we know that that's not the case. That it's yeah. You know, the, the mage thinks that he's consequential, but we know that he's not. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. I, I guess it's a very minor point, but, but it feels almost not not so much a betrayal, but he's sort of ensuring that Susie can't come back either, and that Susie doesn't want to come back and. Okay, this is my world now. We'll swap over, basically. You have that world, I'm a, we won't come back. There'll be no, never the twain shall meet, basically. Seems to be the major's attitude here. It doesn't feel like he's like signed off on that and sees it. seems like a sort of, uh, almost sort of cutting Susie loose here. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but actually that would be a really neat point where the major just goes like, yeah, she's... Yeah, she's taken Wendemore. He's not even thinking about Susie at this point. Like, he doesn't care if Susie succeeds or not. Yeah. <laughs> which I find quite funny. I'm not sure how you feel about this. There's a scene where he catches Tina and Farrah fairly easily, freezes them, and then has this big uh, gliding monologue. A part of it is where he basically mocks Farrah and says, oh, you're the big disappointment in your family, and your father wouldn't be surprised to see you failing right now. And he's like, a, it, he basically... It just is a bit weird because given what me and Nemo see in the comics where Farrah's father is a drunken mess after the death of um, Patrick Spring's wife, which you know, was happened on his watch and he blames himself for. Uh, and uh, it feels like the Farrah's dad is actually the screw up, not Farrah. And it, or I guess maybe the mage wouldn't know that necessarily himself. All he knows is that Farrah's dad died recently and they didn't get on. And Were the comics written after or before season two? Before. Hmm. I think it's just a divorce from the comics. Like I, yeah, I just, absolutely. Like I just and, think they didn't view them as canon when writing this episode, and maybe didn't even read them. 
Yeah, um, it definitely feels like Max Linus doesn't didn't see the the comics as canon, which would explain a bit. But you know, screw him. I, I can't <laughs> believe what I want. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I like Farrah's response though. She doubles down on the character arc of you know I am steadfast in my beliefs and my assurance of myself. She's like I'm not afraid of you. You know, yeah. he's trying to do the psychological you're a screw up, which is a, a callback to season one when the taken over the body swapped FBI agent did that and she, you know, collapsed Cave, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, pretty much all our main characters are screw up. So I feel like um I feel like uh, the mage could have done this no matter who was facing him. Like uh, could have done a similar <laughs> speech to Tina as well. Sure. <laughs> but, um uh do you another thing that's a little weird about this is that he sort of decides, you're my puppets now. And this is a thing that I feel is a little bit cheap as well. But so first of the confusing thing is he gets them all to shoot each other and he sort of uses Hobbes because again it's sort of manipulation and he's sadistic and he knows that they both really care about Hobbes. Hobbes shoots them and he it feels like almost he lets, or I'm not sure if this is an accent or not, that Farron maybe is strong enough to sort of defy the major sort of puppet master control that Farron shoots Hobbes when he's just explained that he needs Hobbes to drive the car, the zombie hobs basically, to drive the car mm. uh, into the cutting set to blow up and destroy the portal. Uh, I, so I guess you can explain as well that, well, if Hobbs dies, he can just get, you know, someone else zombified to do it for him. And it wouldn't be particularly difficult. He let up on his control of them when he made Hobbs walk at them. Um, they both point their guns at Hobbs when he tells yeah. Hobbs to walk at them and points his gun at them. So the reason... Uh, the, the the major loses here is basically because well, I, well the way Farrah puts it is that oh because you're not in Wendemore <laughs> uh, which is yeah. sort of action hero kind of line it feels a combination of I think I said in the synopsis it's overconfidence I think also it's Farrah just gets very very lucky that um she, she does but, yeah so the way it happens is uh, just to recap is I think Tina is being forced to shoot at Farrah to finish her off and Farrah is able to defy control jump forward put the gun out and just sort of millions of one shot, he hits the wand out of the Mage's hand, which is the one yeah. that gives power over the situation, basically. And the Mage, instead of instantly going for the wand, he's like, how can you defeat me? I'm, no one in Wendemore can defeat me. <laughs> and he goes on this big one just shows how, again, how he, he can, even in this moment when the wand's out of his hand, he still completely underestimates them. And Farrah, uh, quite smartly, I think, uh, shoots the... Well, this is sort of last ditch ring, shoots the explosives because he, she knows that bullets can't necessarily kill the mage and, and she wants to make sure he's fucking gone forever so blows it all up in a sort of last ditch kind of thing because it certainly puts uh, Hobbs and uh, Tina and herself at risk as well even though they've already been shot so she's just thinking fuck it at this point yeah yeah so what did you guys feel it, it almost like they end this whole plot with the, the threat from the mage in episode two early in my opinion it's a consequence of this being a B plot, and that uh, they need to get the mage sort of out of the way so they can focus on all the stuff they want to they want to focus on in Wendemore and Blackwing and the final episode. But it feels a bit, yeah. I, I think you were alluding to this earlier, Jesse, that you you thought it was a bit anticlimactic, maybe. You know, I feel like I've been defending the B plot from you, uh, like for the past several uh, episodes, and on rewatch of the ending of the B plot, I I don't like how this ends. <laughs> so so obviously the the mage himself it like makes this scene and he's the best part of this scene oh, yeah. um he's like just he's literally just chasing this high of hurting people like it's it's kind of interesting and fun to watch of uh, him just like 
well, no, that would be too easy. I can't just kill you that way. I have to make you like, I have to like break you inside and make you feel all of this terrible pain. So he's like going about all of these different ways that he can make them feel horrible, like making them shoot their friend, making them for their friend shoot them, like all of these different combinations. And that, that, that works. Like, I like that. I think that like that as a sequence works. Obviously his plan to blow up the house is you know it's kind of whatever they all get shot which by the way like again i talked i've talked about this before all of those bullet wounds would be like catastrophic for them like they they walk those off in a way that is completely unbelievable um but <laughs> yeah. also uh again this is like, would not have the strength to die forward and pull the gun uh, away from her like she i mean up. adrenaline is a hell of a drug like i'm not listening uh, we know we've been set up that fair is very tough but yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, adrenaline can make the body do crazy things. I and mean, I'll assume that she's completely running on adrenaline at that point. But there is like one thing that like really genuinely bothered me, which is that like Farrah shoots the gun a couple times and then manages to, with her thumb, eject the magazine. And you are supposed to then believe that that causes there to be no bullets in the gun. That is not how a semi-automatic pistol works. Every <laughs> oh, time yeah. you pull the trigger, a, a bullet is ejected from the chamber and a new one is instantly loaded in. And unless the gun had jammed, even without the magazine in, there would still be a bullet in that chamber. And she, it, it, she clicks it against her head and it's empty. And it like, I, I, again, this is a thing that like, oh, if you don't, if you're a child and you don't know how guns work, like that, that might be what you think is the right thing to do or how you could get rid of that. But you'd have to rack the, the slide to eject that bullet. Um, it's just a minor little thing. Or, or in Australia. Australia doesn't have the gun culture that America has. I didn't, you know, that it's the sort of thing that once you pointed out, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That is the way that, but it doesn't, it doesn't instinctively make me go like, no, but that's not the way guns work. I just like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I totally get that. And I, it's just, it's a thing yeah. that just bugs me and I get that I'm alone. And I just had to yeah. point it out, but, but the mage dies again because of this one in a million shot that hits his wand and then she shoots the car and he blows up. And to me, that is so underwhelming of a finish for him. It is. It, it's just like it. It feels. Yeah, because it's not stupid. like Farrah even feels... outsmarts him particularly. If you yeah. just get lucky in, I I kind of like the um the, the the fact that she did. It wasn't just the case. Oh, she shot that, but she just happened to be out of bullets, and she just gets lucky twice. I like the fact that they had actually had the presence of mind to sort of uh try and get the clip out of the gun when she realizes she's been controlled. Uh, being an idiot, I preferred that, but I, I, I didn't think the accuracy ruined that, that scene for me personally, even knowing how guns work, having you explain it to me. But... I, I, I wish one of like two or three things happened. I wish one, the mage actually got the car to the house and had a standoff with priests. Um, mm. I, I think that could have been a much more interesting fight because the mage versus priest are two effectively villainous characters going at each yeah. other. Oh, you know what they missed the opportunity for? Now you mentioned that because the plan was to get Hobbs in the car to do it. They missed the opportunity to have a scene with Priest and Hobbs meeting each other because, of course, Tyler Bean and Tudic have great chemistry in um, uh, what was that movie called? Dale and Tucker versus Evil. Oh, I didn't even. I completely forgot that 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 he was that that uh, Hobbs was the other character in that. Movie. Yeah, because Hobbs disappears like right before uh, I think. Um, priest shows up in Berkeley because he gets caught caught by the major that that could have been 
a really cool uh, scene. I feel like maybe they're running out of time or it almost feels like they were teasing that and then they end up doing this rushed thing in the quarry instead. <laughs> so maybe yeah. Right there. I mean, I think the, the other thing that would have been cool is I think having the mage survive would have been cool. Like, like he doesn't win, but he, but he still exists in our world. Him being a recurring villain, <laughs> just like yeah, he was originally yeah, designed yeah. to be. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think that if he loses his wand, that like suddenly his power is neutered and like he's then just trying to get a wand back or get back to Wendemore to get a new wand. I'm not sure. Like you, you could give him a MacGuffin to chase after, but like watching the mage try to figure out how he works and like develop throughout the next season would have been cool instead he's just like i'm this crazy sociopath and now i've been blown up oh dear it, it just felt like such a sudden abrupt and kind of disappointing ending yeah, it, was, it was quite funny um looking at um john hannah's twitter feed when he heard about the animated series he's like cool i would love to bring the mage back and it's like john i'm pretty sure the mage exploded <laughs> that would be quite hard to retcon well maybe the mage is the wand Ooh, that could be interesting. Yeah, the, the mage is the wonder, or just an intrinsicness of uh, he came from a different pocket reality. So, yeah, you know, there's some mageness that can't be destroyed within this reality. And given enough time, he'll. Well, they have, it made more sense maybe if Susie brought him back. If they ever. Put, yeah. I think Susie's character at the, end, at the very end of this is sort of comes to a natural conclusion, but we'll come to that. So. I think we've really gone through the whole episode, so I think all that's really left in terms of the episode, um, if, if that's all right with you guys, do we go through the references? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, Bart references her separation from Ken off-screen after being faced with a tank in the first season, and she apologizes for leaving Ken behind, which is a nice little bit of continuity. Uh, when Todd is having his parabolized attack, she tells Todd, don't panic. Dirk also says this right before jumping into the pool at the end of the episode. This is, of course, the same message written on the back of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in big, bold, friendly letters. I'm one of the reasons that it sold so well. <laughs> um, the framing of the opening shot, reverse shot, in the scene where Freakin talks to Mona is very Stanley Kubrick-esque. It's a wide angle, it's dead center, and it's symmetrical, even now having four guards either side of Freakin. The big, white, antiseptic cell is very reminiscent of the spaceship scenes in Kubrick's film 2001, Space Odyssey. Did you guys notice that? Did you feel that? Because if you look through a lot of videos of like Kubrick's cinematography, you start to notice that, especially in like The Shining with the big wide angles. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that's one of those things that I'm not versed well enough in filmography, I guess, to have picked up myself. But I am versed enough that once you mention it, I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, that felt like a really interesting kind of direction from Ulrich Riley. Mona also name drops the episode title in this scene. Like, oh, Dirk's in trouble. Oh, trouble is bad. <laughs> Jesse pointed me out in this digital before we started recording. Tob's being shot was teased in a vision and uh, way earlier in the season when I think when Amanda was under the really fake CGI looking train. <laughs> <laughs> I find this is the final one. I'm not sure about this one. But, uh, when Panto talks to Jeffem and Freya, he says the line, if there is to be any hope for a future in this land, you must wake up and stop this. I thought the wake up bit was really interesting because it's quite appropriate given that uh, the boy whom Panto's ultimate quest was to help Dirk find and return to Winterworld is currently in a coma and needs to wake up. And he tells them to wake up. So it sort of reflects sort of the real world uh, stakes that their world sort of relies on, basically, that uh, Dirk getting this boy back and getting him out of this coma, basically. Mm. Yeah. So that's really the episode. Any final thoughts on this episode? I mean, I, I felt I felt very... Eh, at the end of this episode, I there's there's. Do you so think much... ending on that "Don't panic" quote was part of that? Do you think it was a bit on the nose? 
I don't. It was cute. It was fine. I just feel like the, I just feel like this episode had a lot of really good moments, but uh, it didn't have very good character development or character completion moments. Like, and I think I think the next episode has those and they're unearned, but we'll talk about that. But like, I felt like this episode was just like big action sequences, big explosions, and then you know a couple of other things that didn't feel good. By design, um, not not to say that you have to have the thing feel good. Like the Bart thing doesn't feel good, but I think that's fine that that doesn't feel good. But it dragged in a couple of spots, and it it just wasn't as good as I wanted it to be of an episode. Yeah, it, it, I agree. It, it wasn't an amazing episode. It was functional. Pretty much what uh, what I said at the beginning about it moved characters around chessboard style not not completely but enough that that's still pretty much my feeling of the episode okay i I wanted you guys to answer first so i can make up my mind um, <laughs> i um i think this one's okay actually i uh i thought episode eight was okay and then you guys convinced me that it kind of sucked and this one i so i feel like this one i saw when the other way i was like more nitpicky on it and i thought it was actually there's a lot of stuff in here that i really like and i think Maybe the hold is not as good as some of its parts, and you're right, there are character motivations that don't really work, but I, I like the way it sets up the finale. I I think the stuff in Wendemore is quite good. The Blackwing stuff, yeah, it's messy, but I really like being introduced to Mona, I think kind of makes up for it. And the only bit I really don't like is sort of the quarry stuff with the mage and uh, Farantina, which is sort of... Individual bits had bits. The quarry stuff had... John Hanna as the mage eating the scene. Yeah, that, that was, that was fantastic. We had Bart meeting Priest. That that is such a fantastic scene. Yeah, I think Bart again was the big highlight. Bart and Panto yeah. were the big highlight, essentially. I think, and they were good. Yeah. It's almost a shame we don't get more Bart and Panto uh, just hanging out because most of the season they spent they spent in the same place in that prison cell, and it, this is great to see them out and about and going to Wendermore. I agree it was chessboardy, but it felt like people were moving and it felt like things were sort of finally kind of falling into place a little bit in terms of, um, uh, I guess, the sort of what, like what they say, people being where they needed to be. And they, yeah, it's scripty, but um, yeah, I, I felt like I'm more forgiving of this than you, both of you, but um, maybe that's me being stupid. I don't know. I'm, a, it's, I'm allowed to like this, right? <laughs> sure. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, next time we'll be doing the final episode, which is cool. Nice jacket. Uh, but um, but but that was um, big trouble in the little pocket dimension. <laughs> or, or trouble is bad, right? Yeah. Anyway, if you want to contact us, you can contact us on dirtjourneypodcast.wordpress.com where we have an email form and uh, people do send us emails. We got one email last time, which we read out, which was cool. Uh, and... Um, uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Edward J Hunter, and Nemo is at sub underscore ETHR, I believe. Yep, that's it. Yeah, and Nemo's on that at Erebus Wall. Uh, Jesse. Jesse. It's all right. It's late. It's oh, very late. So well. You're right. You were doing great. Yeah, at Erebus Wolf, E R E B U S Wolf. Uh, Jesse's one. Nemo doesn't have two. Well, he does have two, but that's not one of them. Um, so, and uh, Jesse, your game. Uh, in search of hush in search of dominic ward yeah, yeah you got the voice actors to record the the thing for it. yeah the voice acting is in the game we're working on sound editing stuff i've been doing some things involving vr hand movement i got a vfx artist hired unfortunately one of my artists had a baby and the, another one is dealing with uh covid issues so it's been uh, it's been some things moving faster some things moving slower but it's still moving along so 
anyway, coming to a close of the season, it's going to be great to finish off. I think it's going to be a great final episode. And uh, yeah, I'm going to finish now because I'm tired and I feel like just passing <laughs> to sleep. But um, thanks for listening. How's it all going to end in Windermore? Is everyone going to die? Is everyone going to live? Oh, big tension. Goodbye. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> Pick a line. Uh, so, goodbye. See, ya. See you, everyone. Have a good night, everybody.